You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. We've been looking at stories from the Gospels, these books about the life of Jesus, wondering together about what they might mean for our lives as modern people. And we've talked about a bunch of different things. We've talked about our busy schedules. We've talked about social media, about mental health, about the pursuit of happiness. This week, though, we're going to dive into the one topic that I asked Julie to preach because I really didn't want to. And that topic is money. (laughs) What would Jesus say about money? What's interesting is that Jesus says quite a bit about money in the New Testament, unlike some of the other topics that we've covered so far. We have this great advice to start out with in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. Solid advice. Thanks, Jesus. Then we've got this lovely little reminder from the Gospel of Luke. He says, watch out. Guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life is not determined by one's possession, even when someone is very wealthy. Okay, Jesus. Picking up what you're putting down. I see. Apparently, Jesus did feel pretty strongly about money, at least from Luke's perspective, because we also have Jesus saying a little bit later on in the gospel, no household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, Jesus. We also have some conventional wisdom from the Apostle Paul, who is not Jesus, just to be clear, but who's still pretty important, right? Uh, And so we see him offering this, probably the most famous advice about money in the New Testament, which is also, coincidentally, the most misquoted advice about money in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, Paul writes, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some have wandered away from the faith and have impaled themselves with a lot of pain because they made money their goal. Maybe you've heard someone say money is the root of all evil before, but that's not quite what Paul is saying. He says the love of money is the root of some kinds of evil. I can think of a lot of evil that we can see in the world today that really doesn't have much to do with money at all, right? Then we have one of my favorite stories and all of the New Testament from the Gospel of Mark. Looking around, Jesus said to his disciples, it will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples. So Jesus told them again, children, it's difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. So, the witness of Jesus, as far as we can tell from the Gospels and from his disciples who wrote the rest of the New Testament, is that we as Christian people should have an approach to money that is incredibly cautious. We should be careful. Amassing wealth should never be our goal, 
lest we begin to worship money instead of God. Now, I don't think any person in this room would be surprised by any of that, right? It seems to fit with Jesus' whole vibe. Kind of makes sense when we think about what we know about Jesus. Because Jesus is a blue-collar guy. He's a carpenter who hangs out with fishermen. And more than that, we also know uh, that he gives up his home and his family and his work and thereby his income to travel around with said fishermen for three years. Although it's really easy for us to get caught up in this Jesus story because it seems so exciting to us, I think sometimes we miss the fact that it's a really strange story. Jesus and his friends make the radical decision to willingly become homeless, to travel the countryside of Israel together. We get glimpses of this reality as they go from town to town, relying often on the hospitality of strangers that they meet along the way. I was joking about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus and his disciples were just the worst kind of house guests. They tend to invite themselves over to other people's house for dinner all the time. Namely because they didn't have houses themselves, or dinner for that matter. <laughs> uh, they didn't have much to their name. So by traveling and preaching and teaching and healing as they did, Jesus and his friends chose poverty for themselves. They chose to be and if the words of Jesus are to be taken at face value, this reality wasn't just a byproduct of their strange lifestyles. It was a deeply intentional choice on their part to avoid what amounts to one of the biggest stumbling blocks to the kingdom of God. I want to return for a moment to that passage about the camel and the needle. I love it so much. I think Jesus was intentionally trying to be ridiculous. And I'd like to imagine if Jesus was here today, he might say something to us like, uh, it's, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. It would be like trying to force a Volkswagen through your phone charger or something. I don't know, something ridiculous like that. Right? Jesus takes these two objects, these two things that were very common in the life of the people in that day and age as he was teaching. So they would understand what he was saying. It is nearly impossible, if not totally impossible, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. I really don't think what Jesus is trying to say is that all rich people are going straight to hell, do not pass go, do not collect $200 because you don't need it anyway. That is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, I don't think Jesus is talking about the afterlife at all here, which is often how people interpret this scripture passage. And when they do that, they're extrapolating a whole lot. They're kind of adding a lot to what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying exactly what he means here, which is that if we want to participate in God's kingdom, which Jesus has already told us is both already here and still unfolding before us, excessive wealth is always going to keep us from participating fully in it. Now, I know what you're thinking, because I used to think the same thing. This sounds like good news to me, Amanda, because I am not excessively wealthy. Isn't that what you're thinking, right? Uh, you're probably thinking, I have a, a pretty reasonable mortgage, and I'm the one who drives that old Toyota out in the parking lot. Like, that's me, right? Like, it's not excessive wealth that I have, so I'm probably okay. Well, my friends, I have some not-so-great news for you this morning. 
here in the United States, and here in Apex in particular, we are, all of us, excessively wealthy. Did you know that nearly 10% of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day? That is $60 a month and only about $730 a year. I know most of the people in this room have spent more on our cell phones than these people have to live in an entire year. We are excessively wealthy here. And I believe Jesus would tell us it is extremely hard for us to see past our wealth into what God is doing in the world. I think that's what Jesus is saying to us about our money. Jesus isn't condemning us to hell. Rather, much like he offers to the rich young man just before this scripture passage, Jesus is offering us an invitation to set that life aside and to enter into the work of God's kingdom. It is not condemnation. It is invitation that we see from Jesus here. His invitation is best encapsulated by our scripture passage that Paula read for us today. Chances are you've heard this one before. If you hang out in church spaces, it's a pretty common one. It's another one of my favorites from the Gospel of Luke. We meet Jesus and his disciples pretty early on in his ministry, right? He's just come from being in the wilderness, and they've just started to travel around. And Jesus hasn't healed anybody yet. He's just preaching. And people are starting to hear him. They're starting to listen to him and be drawn in by this good news, by this gospel that he's sharing with them. And he makes the bold move of returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, It's a bold move because um, everybody knows, as Jesus later says, that prophets are never welcome in their own hometown. I have never received an invitation to preach at the church that I grew up at. And even if I did, I would say no, because it is a bad idea. (laughs) They know too much. And Jesus knew that, but he went anyway. He reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. And the people are amazed. Their eyes are riveted on him. They say, look at Joseph's boy. He was so awkward as a teenager, and look at him now. Look at these great things that he's saying for us. But then they start to really consider what it is that Jesus has said. Wait a second. Isn't he just the carpenter's kid? Who is he to tell us that he has been sent by God to do these things? Also, I don't really like the sound of these things. I imagine they were thinking, sounds like Jesus is going to do a bunch of really great stuff for everybody else, and he's going to completely forget about us. I wonder if that sounds familiar to anybody in this room. (laughs) This story ends in the most insane way possible. Like, I think if you were just trying to make up the craziest ending to this story, you still wouldn't get as crazy as it gets, right? And we never read this part. We only read the lovely part from, uh, from Isaiah. But what happens is the people get so angry that they take Jesus, this person who they have known his entire life, and they push him out to the edge of town, to the edge of a cliff, where they try to push him off of the cliff. This is why it was a bad idea for Jesus to go preach in Nazareth. And it doesn't really say how it happens, but Jesus somehow moves back through the crowd, and his disciples join him, and they go on their way as if none of this has ever happened. 
pretty strange ending to that story. It begs the question, what exactly did Jesus say that prompted them to become murderous? Because when we hear his words, they seem pretty innocuous to us, right? Let's go back to it. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. They knew that already, so it can't be that. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is actually pointing them to something rather specific, something that the Nazarenes would have known quite a bit about. When at the end of his scripture reading, Jesus says he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus is referring to the practice of jubilee. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Leviticus, any Leviticus scholars in here this morning? No? (laughs) It's okay, me either. Uh, But if you've read the book of Leviticus, you know that jubilee was a practice built into the ancient Jewish laws by God. Essentially, every 50 years, once every generation, the people were to engage in a whole year of the Lord's favor. And what this entailed, the instructions told them that they were to take the year, every single person, and rest. They were to do no work all year. In addition to that, Uh, Because they weren't working, they were also offering rest to the land and to the working animals that they used to do their work together. And so um, that was an essential process for the land and for those animals so that they could then, after the year was over, continue on in their work in a way that was healthy both for the earth and for those creatures and for them. It was also commanded that all slaves would be set free that every piece of land that had been sold or taken to pay off debt would be returned to its original owner, and that all debts would be forgiven, every single one of them. Imagine with me for a moment, if someone came here to Apex and addressed the whole town, and they told us that they were going to establish a whole year of these practices right here in our town. Not only would we question who this person was and whether or not they actually had any authority to make us do that in the first place, but I think we would also be pretty upset at the insinuation that this was something that we needed to do. Quit work for a year? How are we going to make money? How are we going to provide for our families? How are we going to pay for the mortgage and the old Toyota? return land back to the original owners, we would all be out of luck on that one, wouldn't we? Forgive debts? That would ruin the economy because it's going so well already, right? (laughs) What's amusing to me about this imaginary scenario is that it would never, ever happen. Not in this day and age, not in this society, not in the United States of America. We would never get so angry that we would try to push push this messenger off a cliff because he would never even get the time of day from us. We would never hear from him to make us mad in the first place. What might be a slim comfort to us in that imaginary scenario is that the ancient Israelites also felt this way about Jubilee too. 
In fact, there is no evidence in all of Scripture that this practice was ever completed. Not even one time. Not once. It's possible, I guess, that it became such a normal part of their lives, a normal part of their every 50-year rhythms, that they never decided to mention it again, right? They, did, they didn't think it was worth mentioning after that point. But I kind of think that what's more likely is that they didn't want to do this. And so they didn't, right? We see later on how the leaders and the kings of Israel amassed obscene wealth. And they enslaved countless people. So I don't think they were practicing jubilee with any regularity at all. So when Jesus takes up the scroll of Isaiah and reads this very familiar yet entirely unpracticed instruction to them, to his family and to his friends, the very last thing they expect him to say is today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it read. What they begin to realize is that Jesus is completely serious. They are starting to understand that Joseph's kid, who they always knew was special, is actually coming to do the work that God always intended for them to do together, and that it was going to absolutely turn their lives upside down. Their way of life, which was completely dependent upon work and slavery and debt was being threatened just by the words of scripture that Jesus was reading aloud to them that day. How inconvenient this practice of jubilee would be for them. The only thing on their minds when they're trying to throw Jesus off the cliff is we can't let this happen. It would ruin everything. I think that is exactly what Jesus means when he says that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Because what we come to learn through the whole rest of Jesus' ministry and life is that his whole purpose on this earth is jubilee. He really means it. He has come to preach good news to the to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He shows us this when he goes out to heal the sickest of the sick, those people that everybody else wouldn't even go near. He shows us this where he goes out into the community to find those who are marginalized and pushed to the edges of society and brings them back into the fold, all those people over there. He shows us this time and time again as he preaches this good news, this word of gospel, this word of jubilee to people who are desperate to hear it. And as long as you and I operate in this world that revolves around money, as long as most of our time is spent trying to maintain our excessive wealth, we are always going to miss the invitation that Jesus is constantly offering us to be a part of this jubilee here and now. The jubilee that Jesus is inviting us to participate in. This past week, I had the privilege of joining several of our peak youth and adult volunteers at something called AOSP, which stands for Apex Outreach Service Project. This is something that's been happening in our community for 23 years now. 
And each summer, for a week, we send out teams of high school students to partner with local homeowners in order to restore their homes, to do some work to help them make their houses safer and warmer and drier. I've been a part of the last five AOSP weeks, and I have to say that it really is my favorite week of the year every year. Now, it's not my favorite because of the hours. Uh, working with a bunch of teenagers uh, from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. the whole week is a lot, uh, even for me. <laughs> That's not why it's my favorite. It's not my favorite because of the weather. AOSP is always on the third week of July, which is notoriously and historically the hottest week of the year every year. That's not why it's my favorite. It's not my favorite because of the hard work, uh, just a fun detail, I was 22 years old when I started this job. I am not 22 anymore, uh, and it's really hard to keep up with kids that are 14 to 18 years old. Uh, I, needless to say, I'm more than a little sore today. <laughs> but it's my favorite week of the year because without fail, I get to watch as these students are transformed. They come into the week quiet or unsure or reluctant even, and then they're sent out into the community, into our community. And as they work hard in the hot sun to improve the quality of life of our neighbors, as they work together to do things that they would never know how to do on their own, as they're reminded each evening of the purpose for why they're doing this, at the end of it all, they emerge different from when they started. Here's a couple of uh, overheard at AOSP quotes just from this last week. AOSP is what you look forward to after Christmas is over. This week is a 15 out of 10 for me. I never want AOSP to end. And perhaps most importantly, we heard uh, one of the homeowners say, it feels like uh, these are my kids playing in my backyard, but... They're doing so much more than that, right? They're making repairs and they're building new things. But really what they've done is they've reminded me that I am not alone. I don't really know how else to say it except to say that AOSP is the closest to Jubilee that I've ever seen. And it happens right here in Apex every single summer. But here's the thing about it, though. After it's over, there's always this like downhill slump that comes immediately after. Because during that week, every year, I'm reminded of the incredible need that exists all the time right here in our own community. And then I get to witness these young people get after it with everything that they've got. I get to witness these neighbors of ours feeling seen and heard and cared for, in some cases for the first time in many years. It's beautiful. And then it's done. But the hope is that these young people will carry this DNA of AOSP, this DNA of Jubilee, with them into the months and years ahead. But what we've found is that Jubilee is much harder to discover. It's much harder to do when you're not surrounded by other people who are looking for it and who are doing it with you. It's so much harder to do when it seems impossible in the light of everything else that's going on in the world. All we have to do is ask the ancient Israelites to know that this is true. Jubilee is hard. So given all of that, 
The question, I think, still remains before us. What would Jesus say about money? I think Jesus would say to us, live, take care of your family, do that. And then your job is to make good on my promise. I told you that this scripture is fulfilled, and I meant it, but what I meant by that was not a statement of fact, but it was an invitation to what should be the work of your life. Jesus says, my intention is to offer the spirit of the Lord to you, for you to preach good news to the poor. As it turns out, in order for us uh, to preach the gospel, when we share about our faith, when we tell other people about what God has done in our lives, it actually has to be good news to those who are poor. Otherwise, it isn't the gospel. That's a requirement. You and I, we actually don't need good news all that often. We're doing okay, right? But there are people who desperately need good news. And so when we talk about the gospel, it has to be good news for them too. It can't just be good for us. Jesus is incredibly clear about that. He says that all of our churching, all of our singing, all of our doing life together has to be good news for the whole world, not just for us. Jesus says, my intention is to empower you to proclaim release to the prisoners. As it turns out, Jesus was pretty serious about that whole freedom thing. As Emma Lazarus says, until we are all free, we are none of us free. Or as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I tend to think that Jesus would agree. Jesus says, my intention is to invite you into a life of offering sight to the blind, of truly seeing clearly yourself and then teaching others to see in the same ways, right? We can't do this literally. I don't know about you, but I have never healed someone uh, and restored their sight to them. That would be pretty cool. I'd probably preach about that a lot more often if it had happened to me. And also I would have started with myself without corrective lenses. I'm very blind. I cannot see. I would be useless. So probably start with me. Selfish or not, whatever, I don't know. <laughs> so we can't do it literally. But I think we all know what Jesus means when he says that there are people among us who cannot see this world clearly. They need vision to be restored to them, and that is our job too. Jesus says, my intention for you is to liberate the oppressed, those who are suffering at the hands of the ones with all the power. As it turns out, we actually don't have to look very far to find the oppressed in our midst. And in our excessive wealth, we actually have everything we need to join in that work of liberation already. Jesus says, my intention is for you to become proclaimers of the Lord's favor so contrary to the way that many Christians do it, we are not supposed to be harbingers of doom and destruction. We are supposed to be people who spread the good news about God's love, love that will never leave us in our poverty, love that will never leave us in our blindness to the truth, in our oppression, in our oppressing, in our slavery to sin and death. God's love will never leave us there. In response to our questions 
about money, Jesus says our primary job is jubilee. And if you're wondering what that looks like, all we have to do is look toward the young people in our community. All we have to do is picture what this world would look like if it was totally turned upside down. And then if we can do that, if we can make decisions about money in a way that honors that, then I think we will be well on our way to squeezing through the eye of that needle into the jubilee that is waiting for us on the other side. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.